Scripture this morning is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, which he writes from prison. Chapter 4 is very well known. It uh, talks about rejoicing in the Lord. Again, I will say uh, rejoice. And then it talks about not having anxiety about anything but give thanks uh, uh, and, and in prayer and make your requests known to God. But then moves on to this as he thanks them for being concerned about him. And this is what he writes beginning in uh, verse 11. I do not say this because I am in need, because I have learned to be content in all circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in each and every circumstance. So whether well-fed or hungry, or whether in plenty or in need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Like you, perhaps, I spent the first several days of the new year greeting people and wishing them a happy new year and, and, and having them wish me the same. But then I began to wonder, is that such a good idea? Is, is happiness really the best that I want for you? Is happiness really the highest thing that I want for myself? I started thinking about this a few years ago. I read a person who wrote an article and said basically many Americans are what he called happiness addicts. And that they spend their life looking for the next big thing that they're pretty sure will make them happy and satisfy uh, their life. And I thought about uh, an American author two decades ago, who made, John Cheever, who made this observation. He said, as he went around America, he said, the dominant emotion I see among most middle uh, class and up Americans, the dominant emotion I see in them is disappointment. You know, they set out for certain things in life, and those things, whether they got them or not, uh, did not deliver the happiness in their life. And in fact, uh, recent studies indicate that there are a large number of countries actually where people are happier than we are in America. Uh, most surprisingly to me, India uh, is several slots higher on the happiness scale. And then our team leaves for Burundi in Africa on Thursday. And one of the things we're always overwhelmed by is, is, the, is the happiness of the people, uh, it seems, in the midst of their poverty. And so we've set out for this happiness goal, and it hasn't really seemed to work for us. Uh, some years ago, um, a man, a researcher, an economist named David Myers wrote a, a, a book called The American Paradox. And what he said is he was not able in America to find any positive correlation between the amount of things that we have and how happy we are. He said, in fact, if anything, it almost looks like a negative correlation, that the more stuff we accumulate, the more things we seem to have, the less likely we seem to be happy. Now, I'm not blaming any of us in our, our search to be happy. I think it's, it's in our DNA as Americans. I mean, remember the Declaration of Independence and the talk of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's, it's there, it's sort of programmed into us. The economy is built on it. The economy assumes that we all are going to need something better and other than what we currently have to reach a, a level of happiness in our life. But the statistics and experience seem to show that it doesn't really work that way in reality. Uh, there's um, a wonderful book written some years ago by a, a former physician 
named uh, Richard Jensen, and the book was uh, Richard Swenson. It was called Margins, and he just talked about how our pursuit of more has just sort of clogged our life. He's written a more recent book on contentment, and he, uh, he talks about a friend of his who's at the airport. And this friend runs into another friend, and the, the friend he runs into is waiting uh, to get on the runway to board his private jet. But he doesn't look very happy, and so he says to his friend, what's the matter? And he said... He said, oh, I thought I was finally going to have to, I was finally going to get a weekend off, and now I've got to go check on the vacation house in Florida. Something's gone wrong. And Swenson said, that's kind of what happens to us. More of our stuff doesn't free us. It almost seems to weigh us down. A little bit later in the book, I find it interesting that he he cites another uh, episode from the airport. He was in the airport some years ago after that uh, just tremendously powerful earthquake in New Zealand. You may remember it hit Christchurch, New Zealand. So I think he's at DFW. Uh, and uh, he, he meets a couple and they say they're from New Zealand. So he's very curious. He says, well, where are you from? And they said, Christchurch. And he said, well, tell me about the earthquake you just had. And the, and the woman, the, the wife uh, of the couple says, well, said, destroyed our house. That destroyed where I work, and my husband's office is, is severely damaged. But we had already uh, paid for this trip to America, so we thought we'd take it and we would come. And he's like amazed. And then she says with a smile to Richard Swenson, she says, Now we feel strangely unencumbered. She didn't have all that stuff. Is there a way, short of an earthquake, that we might move out of the encumbrances of our life? And that we might move actually out of the desire for happiness towards something that may even be longer lasting. And I think what is longer lasting is what Paul refers to in the Philippians when he talks about contentment. The rabbis talked about that the richest people in the world were uh, the rabbis in Jesus' day, shortly before his day, said the richest people in the world were those who were content with what they had. And how many of us really are ever very content? But... It is a great gift, the rabbis knew and Paul knew, to those people who can get it. And there's got to be a way to get it, apart from just having an earthquake and and losing everything that we have. Um, I'm reminded of a story of Christian writer Philip Yancey, and he he went to a monastery for a spiritual retreat. So he checks into his cell, I I mean his room, but it's pretty sparse. And so the monk that's helping him in his room says this to him. He says, now, please. Let us know if you need anything, and we'll come back and show you how to live without it. (laughs) A form of contentment. How can contentment be learned? Well, I want to pass on uh, some of the stuff that, that I see in Paul and that I see just in general wisdom out there about ways perhaps we might become more content. Uh, with our life and not get caught up in, in the happiness um, uh, venture that seems to overwhelm and uh, disappoint so many. Uh, the first thing is this probably obvious to you that one of the places contentment starts is that you start to focus on what you have, not on what you don't have. Contentment starts with what you have, so a focus upon that, an awareness upon that. And, and that doesn't come easily or naturally to a lot of us. I remember some years ago, my wife, who's a nurse practitioner, was working one Sunday I was pastoring a small church, and so when she got home from work, and, uh, and, and I got home from church, and she said, well, how was church today? And I said, well, and I started naming off all the people in the church that I knew weren't there that day. And she said to me, you know, David, that is really interesting to me. She said, most people count attendance by who's there, not who's not there. And I realized my penchant 
to focus on what I don't have or who's not there rather than to focus on the people who are here and to focus on the things that we do have. Now, in order to focus and appreciate the things that you do have, here's a a key to me. And I learned this uh, from a guy named John Ortberg, whose work we quoted last week. He said this, that you'll never fully appreciate uh, the things that you already have, he said, until you learn to be content and to be grateful with imperfect gifts. In other words, until you can give thanks for the way things are rather than the way things you want them to be, you'll never appreciate things as they are. If you're always waiting them to get somewhat better, that you'll never really get there. Remember what John D. Rockefeller said, one of the wealthiest men in America, and they finally asked him one day, you know, just Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And he said this, he said, just a little bit more. If we're always waiting for more before what we have is good enough, we're just not going to get there. And so we'll need to accept gifts, people, jobs, those sort of things as, as we are and as we find themselves in them. And that means to give thanks even before they get perfect for us. I'm reminded of Snoopy. One, uh, one Thanksgiving, Snoopy's on the doghouse uh, uh, on top of his doghouse, and he's looking in the house, and there's a big Thanksgiving spread, and there's a Thanksgiving celebration going on, to which he is, and he's not a part of it. But he says to himself this in the comic. He said, well, it could be worse. I could be the turkey. Yeah, he, he's learning to give be grateful for things as they are. And that's a real important discipline. I mean, to, uh, to learn to give thanks for things as they are, including, you know, our family situation, maybe our spouse, our kids, our, not waiting for them to achieve something else before we're really grateful for them. So focusing on what we have, I think, is a really great start toward contentment. And then here's something that Paul uh, recognizes, that we also need to focus on God. Richard Swenson, in his book on contentment, says that most of us live our life like in a tunnel uh, because we're on earth and all we can see is the stuff around us. But if you've ever driven in a tunnel, you know that there are things above and there are things around that you cannot see. There's other important stuff going on, but you're not aware of it because you're in this tunnel. And sometimes our circumstances become so overwhelming in our life that that's all we can see. And we miss the other things that are happening that may even be more important. And so the focus on God somehow draws me out of my tunnel and gives me, I think, a broader perspective on my circumstances. And and usually one of the things I find out when I get a broader perspective thinking about God is that maybe what I think I needed, it may not be uh, what I need at all. Or let me say it another way. When I think of God as like a heavenly father or heavenly parent uh, and heavenly father and mother to us, I think what father or mother gives their child everything they want at the very moment they want it? If you don't have kids and you're getting ready to, let me tell you, bad idea. Johnny may think he's able to drive the family sports car when he's nine years old, but he's probably not. Probably not a good time to give him the keys. There are a lot of things we withhold because we know it's not the time. Or it really wouldn't be the right thing for him. Uh, To have what we want at the moment we want it, if God did that for us, it might actually be more curse 
than blessing. And so part of, uh, I think, our faith in life with God is to learn, first of all, to appreciate what God has given us when God has given it to us. You know, the idea that there's going to have to be something other or more to really have the life God has in mind for us is actually a dangerous idea. John Orberg, who gave us the parable I used last week about Silicon Valley, gives another one. Some of you have heard it before. He calls it the parable of the golden arches. And it's about a sweet little girl who's five years old. And one night before dinner, she decides she wants to go to McDonald's and have a Happy Meal. And her mom said, look, I've got everything out. I'm ready to cook. It's just about prepared. Maybe tomorrow night or maybe Friday night. We'll do that. No, Mom, I really want to go to McDonald's to give the Happy Meal tonight. She said, look, I mean, everything's about set. We've, we've got it. We just don't have time to do that. Please, she says to her mom, if you give me this, I'll never ask for anything else ever again. Well, that's too good an offer. Mom can't refuse that one. So Mom takes her to McDonald's and, and she gets Happy Meal. And she goes up leaves elementary school and goes into junior high. And junior high, as you, sometimes, as you know, sometimes are awkward years for us. And, and she has braces, and, and those that don't have braces make fun of her. And she gets teased about a number of things when she's in junior high. But, but she goes to high school, uh, and she, but she doesn't complain. And she goes to high school, and things get a little bit better for a while. In fact, actually, she dates the star of the football team, but then finds out shortly before the senior prom that he actually has been dating someone else at the same time and has asked that person to the prom, but she doesn't complain. She goes on to college and a couple of years into college, she meets a wonderful man and, and they meet and after graduation, they marry, she goes to work, he goes to med school, she helps put him through. And when he gets out and when he's uh, finished his residency, well, he meets someone else and he leaves her, but she doesn't complain. And people are amazed that when they made fun of you in junior high, you didn't complain. When uh, your boyfriend cheated on you in high school, you didn't complain. When this man you put through school left you for someone younger, you didn't complain. And she said, of course not. She said, when I was five years old, I got to go to McDonald's to have a Happy Meal. Now, do you believe that story? Of course not. And this is what Ortberg says, because only a child believes that a temporary change in circumstances will bring lasting commitment and contentment, excuse me. Only a child thinks if they can get a Happy Meal, it's going to fix everything in their life. And I think when I, when I look at God and try to look at things from God's point of view, I get a wider and bigger perspective. And I realize that what I think may fix me may not be the, the fix at all. And I realize that Actually, when I found God, I have more than enough resources to go into most any situation. So I'm learning to be content as well, and and it's a struggle, but I know it starts with me focusing on what I have, not what I don't have. I know that it helps me to focus on God so I can get a, a broader and longer and better perspective on my life right now. And then the third thing I'm learning to do is that the more generous I am, actually, the more it makes me not miss what I give away, but be more content with what I have. Some of you may have gotten the letter this week. Others of you probably will come. But in the letter, we mailed an estimate of giving to the church for this coming year. And if you've got uh, time and are in a place where you can turn it in this morning, there's a basket to turn it in the close of the service. But, but there really are three reasons why we do this. The first one is this, that obviously... Uh, the church wants to remind you and encourage you to support this church. I've been here 
half my adult life, and i got to tell you, you guys are amazing, and the things this church does are amazing, but it helps uh, by that giving. I think another thing it does is it helps me prioritize in the midst of my circumstances. If I can sit down and, and, and pray and think about it, then I'll dedicate myself uh, to giving. But to me, this morning, one of the most significant things this does is it brings me another step closer to contentment. Because I find that the more I share, I become not less content, but I become more content and more appreciative of what I have. And I start to understand that what I have is what I have so that I can bless others with it. I'm reminded of a story of a great missionary to China in the 19th century. His name was Hudson Taylor. And he was training in the UK to uh, be a physician. So he's, he's going uh, with a physician on a house call. And it's, it's a widow. She's got four children. Uh, one of the children is very sick. But that's not the only problem. They don't have enough to eat. And they don't have any money. And Taylor has in his pocket, as he's getting ready to leave, a silver coin. And he knows that silver coin could feed that mother and her children for a couple days. But he also knows it could feed him for several days. And he thinks about it for a moment. He starts to walk outside the door of the house thinks better of it, goes back in and gives her that piece of silver. He shares it. And then he goes back home. And the next morning, the mail comes. And he opens up the mail, and there's a gold sovereign worth many, many times what the silver coin was that he gave up. And Taylor learned an important lesson about God's provision that day. Now, please understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you, as you give to God financially, God is going to turn around and give you 10 to 15 to 20 times more. Could happen, but, but I'm not saying that. Here's what I'm saying this morning. That when you and I are generous and we give, what we do, in effect, is that we trade in the silver of happiness for the gold coin of contentment.